Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor Tim Barone. Um, As we read today, I'm going to back us up a little bit to verse 28 so we can see uh, the whole scope of the argument. It says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you are hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by practice and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is God's holy word. And so we're in this kind of uh, long argument from Paul where he's really bringing the whole world uh, to be judged by God. It's a courtroom scene. He's bringing uh, them into the world, uh, into, that, into that courtroom to be judged, not from their own ju- judgment, but from God's judgment. And last week we uh, talked, uh, Pastor John gave a sermon about, in particular, homosexuality. And this week, uh, I want to show you a sin that's, that's worse in fact, I would say it's the worst sin. Uh, Church Fathers has said this is kind of the chief of all sins, and that sin is being judgmental, or pride is another way to put it. And I think it's important that we define what we're talking about. When we say, you know, St. Paul says, uh, 
that we should not judge, right? Every one of us who judges will be condemned. And Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Uh, is he saying that we can't know what is right and wrong? Is that what the point of judging is? No, of course not. In fact, just before this, God says, hey, his wrath is coming out upon all kinds of unrighteousness uh, for those who suppress the truth. And so it's not about not understanding what is right, not understanding what is wrong. Uh, the point is, when it says do not judge, it means don't put yourself in God's position to condemn. That's what it means. Um, don't assume that you have the righteous judgment and stand in judgment over your fellow humans. That's the sin that this is talking about. So we're going to unpack this a little bit and see that when we judge, when we're judgmental in our lives towards other people, that we don't understand the righteousness of God and we don't understand the gospel. And so let's, let's dig into this. Um, like I mentioned in 28, we have this long list of all these things. And like I said, Paul is making an argument against all people. But he begins with uh, this conversation about homosexuality. He begins about uh, this giving up of natural things to turn against. And he says, he points out in particular that this shows the disconnect between creation and creator. It shows a clear link of idolatry uh, because these people are giving up what's even uh, according to nature because they don't see who's behind the giver of the nature. So they give that up. So he points that out, and likely the people he's talking to are going to be agreeing with what he's saying. They're going to say, yeah, yeah, get them, right? Because a lot of the people in the churches are Jewish people. They've grown up with a very strict uh, moral understanding of sexuality. So they're going to agree with that. They're really going to be having a difficult time with the Greco-Roman world and their sexual ethics. And all... Different kinds of people are now in the church, right? And so he's going to be pointing out this one issue that likely is very polarizing, as it is today, and the people he's talking to are likely going to agree that this should be condemned by God. But then immediately after that, uh, things start to get a little bit more difficult. When we are reading all that list of these unrighteous things that people do, right, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventor of evil, disobedient to parents. Did any of you make it through that list? Right? And so you can see the genius of Paul's rhetoric here that begins with something that they're likely to agree with, at least in that culture, at that time. And then he's going to kind of broaden the scope, and he's going to show that all of us have fallen into one of these pitfalls. All of us have been given over by God to certain types of sin. I love that in this, in this um, list, you know, there's this disobedience to parents. It's right in there. So parents, use this as much as you can, right? You can say, there's a list of all these terrible things, and guess what's in there? disobedient to parents, but none of us escape through this list. And you can almost see for the original, original hearers of this letter that the kind of smug expression would be wiped off of their faces as they hear this list 
as they think about their own lives, if, as they think about their own mistakes and the things that they have become guilty for and their own uh, state of their hearts before God. And then 32 is really the kicker because he says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to others who do them too. And so there's a death sentence upon all people who are doing these kinds of things. And you can almost think, is that right? Death sentence? And it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, have you ever gossiped? When you were a kid even? The sentence is death. Right? Have you ever boasted in front of other people, made yourself, built yourself up, been haughty or boastful? The, the sentence is death. Have you ever been arrogant in your work or in your relationships? The sentence is death. This is what it's saying. And then, have you ever been disobedient to your parents? The sentence is death. See, the judgment of God is shocking when you really take it into account. And this actually harkens us back, all the way back to Genesis, when God said to Adam and Eve... The day, of you eat, the day you eat of the, the, that tree, you will surely die. Right? As soon as you rebel, as soon as you take that in, as soon as you rebel against me, your first parent, you will surely die. But that's what Adam and Eve did. They said, I want to know what it means to be good and evil. I want to be in the place of God. I want to be like God. And they went for it, and then the sentence was death. And if we think about this, it actually makes a lot of sense. Should God tolerate sin in his creation? Let's think about gossip. Um, I remember in high school, uh, there was a, a vicious rumor that went around the school about a girl in my class, right? And... Uh, it, was, it was terrible. It was defamatory. It was vicious. It was uh, nasty, right? And when I was a kid, I didn't really think too much about it. I just accepted that rumor, right? It was flying around the school. I just accepted that rumor. And it changed my heart towards her. I didn't, I didn't think about her in a good way. I didn't talk to her. I didn't befriend her. I kind of avoided her. Right? But now I'm a little older, right? and I look back at that experience, and I think there was like a 001% chance that that was true. And there was like a 99.9% chance that that was a malicious lie made up by an angry boyfriend, right? And yet that destroyed her reputation in the school for years, and in particular, it destroyed my thinking about her. I was guilty of that too. Now, should God tolerate that kind of evil in his creation? And for how long? Should he tolerate that in, in his creation the way he wanted it? Should he allow his children, his creation, to slander each other, to burn each other's reputations to the ground? And how long should he tolerate that for? Should he tolerate that for eternity? Or does there have to be some kind of an end to that sin, an end, a consequence? And of course, if we understand the holiness of God, we have to say he can't tolerate that for eternity. 
That has to end. And this is why sin comes with a death sentence. Sin does not deserve to live before the holiness of God forever. If you think that, that would just continue and continue and continue, right, for eternity. And I think when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he saw the sum total of sin playing out. If gossip was the only language we spoke, right, if envy was the only state of our hearts, if anger and malice was our native language for eternity, what would that be? It would be hell. It would be hell. And so this is why he kicked them out of, a, out of the garden. This is why he forbade them to come and eat of the tree of life. So they could not live in this state forever. This is what it says in Genesis. And so he gives this entire list of all of these sins, and he, he's trying to help you diagnose. Are you in this category too? And have you been guilty of sins too? And do you know that the, the penalty of sin is death? And yet you still practice it. And here he comes with one of the greatest gotcha moments uh, in all of liter- literature. Look at chapter 2. He says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He says, do you not see that as soon as you condemn someone else, that condemnation comes back on you? Uh, A few years ago now, I I had a conversation with a guy. I had bought something from him on, you know, Facebook Marketplace or whatever, and when picked it up, and I, after we exchanged money and stuff, uh, we started talking, and he found out I was a pastor, and a lot of times people, when they find out I'm a pastor, they kind of want to commiserate a little bit about the state of the world. Okay, good. And so he started talking about, man, when I was a kid, this is, you know, people weren't like this, you know, especially the young people. You know, when I was a kid, there's respect for adults, and when I was a kid, we, we had respect for each other, you know, and we didn't let things go too far. And when I was a kid, you know, everyone went to church. It was just the right thing to do. I don't know what's wrong with these young people these days. It's a shame. But yeah, I, I agree. The world's kind of messed up, you know. We see it all around us. Uh, you know, where do you go to church? Well, I'm not really a churchgoer. You know, but I really respect what you guys are doing. And looking back, I kind of think like this is the problem. He's the problem. I'm the problem. (laughs) It's the problem is when we think that all of the things that are wrong with the world are out there somewhere. They're in the the young generation. They're in the other people. They're even in the people in the church. But they're everywhere except for me. That's the problem. That is the problem. That is the sin. That is us judging others by our own standard and avoiding the standard that is true, and that is God's standard. 
And this is why I say it's the primal sin or it's the prime sin is because what it really amounts to is becoming God. It's idolatry. It's climbing up into the throne of God, kicking him out, and putting your judgment upon the world where you end up looking good and everyone else fails. And Paul is trying to snap us out of this delusion. This is what St. Paul is warning us about. He's warning us about seeing the sin in everyone else but not in us and becoming judgmental hypocrites like Jesus chastises. Like get the log out of your own eye before you try to help someone else with a speck in their own eye. And so we see this in our own lives all the time, right? We say, you know, so what if I gossip every now and again, right? You should see what Denise does. Who could trust her, you know? Or so what if I'm disobedient? I lie to my parents to get what I want. So what if I'm disobedient to my parents? You should see what Jason gets away with. You see? Or yeah, I'm not exactly into that sexual morality, you know, before marriage thing, but man, it's better than those people who get divorces, am I right? And the problem is whenever we're trying to justify ourselves, the only way we can justify ourselves, because we know we're sinners under the condemnation of God's righteous law, is to compare ourselves to other sinners. We'll never compare ourselves to the righteous standard of God because that means death for us. And so we always will compare ourselves to other people. When we try to justify ourselves, the only way we can do that is through comparison. And there's always someone who's a little bit more sinful than you out there. And if you can't find them, you can always play the Hitler card, right? Here's our problem. We think and we hope that God will judge us on a curve, that he's gonna grade us on a curve. I remember uh, in, in college, I was at chemistry, uh, college chemistry for freshmen in college. And uh, the first exam came up, and I think uh, the average was like 68%, <laughs> like 68% for the exam, like the whole class. There was like 300 people in there. It was terrible, right? And the instructor, she was actually pretty cool about it. She said, well, it must have been my teaching, or they weren't ready for the exam itself was flawed, but I'm going to grade, grade it on a curve. And so that means, I'm, you know, you get ranked on how you did on the test, and you go up and down, not necessarily based on how many right answers you got, but how many people you did better than. And we really hope that that's the way that God is going to judge the world. We really hope that I'm going to be okay if I, just, if I just run a little bit faster than the person behind me. Or I'm going to be okay before God if I just do a few more right deeds in my life. And this is what he's after. He says, that's not the way that God is judging the world. And if you think that way, you're absolutely delusional. Because God is not going to change his standards of judgment for sin. You think he's going to, but he's not. And in fact, he says, you're so delusional that what you're doing, you're hardening your heart before God and you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God comes with final judgment, with his righteous judgment. And so he seeks to, to wake us up. It's like a, 
a glass of cold water in the face. He says, what are you thinking? That's not the way this is going to work. And then he gives us a couple reasons why we might think this way. So let's look together uh, in verse 3, 2 verse 3. He says, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's one possibility. I'm just going to get away. Or two, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Those are the two reasons he gives, two hypotheticals. Why would we think this way? And it sounds a lot like uh, the Old Testament lesson that we read about David, right? David had uh, not gone to war when he should have. He had taken Bathsheba uh, to be his own wife. Uh, he had got her pregnant. And then when they found that out, he decided to cover it all up uh, by killing Uriah after he tried to trick him into coming home. He decided to kill him. And he did that by sending him to the front lines of the war and then having his generals retreat, so he would be slaughtered. And so David, in order to think that he was going to get away with this, what did he have to do? He had to suppress the truth about God. He had to make up his own God in his head, right? And that God was going to let him get away. That God was not powerful enough to know the deception of his heart. That God is going to just say, well, I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't notice it. I was distracted for the time being. Or I don't really have the power to do anything about it, right? He had to make God small in his mind. Or, and this is more likely for him and for us, he had to say, I think God likes me so much, he's going to let me get away with it. Because God's kind of a pushover. He's kind of like a, a, a friendly grandpa in the sky, who doesn't really do anything harsh, who doesn't hate sin and judge it with righteousness. He had to do one of those things. And he was snapped out of it when uh, Nathan the prophet came to him and says, you're that man. Right? He told him the story about the sheep and David's like mad. He's like, kill that guy. And he's like, you're the man. The same judgment that you use is used against you. And thankfully, uh, he repented, right? And God had mercy on him, although there was consequences. But Luther says David had lost his salvation at that point until Nathan came and gave him the word of God and woke him up from his stupor, and he could restore him. And that's why this is such a, a deadly sin, because so often we cannot see it. But it separates us. It makes us demote God into a pushover. It makes us think that he's not going to get us. He, he doesn't know or that he doesn't care. It makes us to be God in his place. When we justify ourselves, we run the risk of losing salvation because we reject the true God for our own version of God. It also means that we don't understand the gospel. Um, the gospel says that God gives you something for free. It's grace. The gospel says that God has taken sin upon himself. The true wrath 
that comes from heaven upon sin, upon sinners, has come to Jesus and not to you. And if we think that God's going to grade us on a standard, we're missing the point. If God graded any of us on a standard, we would be completely condemned. But God thankfully comes with his gospel of righteousness where he gives for free the mercy that we need. And he says, I give this to you into your hand as a gift and not as something you can earn, not that you can compare yourself to anything else to make yourself better. The best place I, I can think of uh, to point to this is John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, uh, there's uh, Pharisees uh, and teachers of the law who bring to Jesus a woman who is caught in adultery, right? And they think, they're testing him. They think, what should we do? The, the law says we should stone her. And you know the story, I hope. Jesus, uh, he stops them from stoning her, and he starts to write on the ground some things uh, just, just on the ground. We don't know what he's writing, but he's writing some things on the ground. And then finally, he says to them, you who has no sin, start casting stones. You start throwing the first stone. And it says in the text that gradually, from the wisest to the youngest, the oldest to the youngest, uh, they all walked away. And this woman, cowering about ready to die for her sins, uh, with her face to the ground, Jesus goes and puts a hand on her shoulder and says, where are those who would condemn you? And they're nowhere. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. This is a picture of the gospel. And I think uh, two questions for us. One, what was Jesus writing in the sand? Now, we don't know, but whatever he wrote made them all turn away and run. What if Jesus was writing down their sins in the sand? Right? What if Jesus was writing the times, the dates, the places where they had sinned and they began to recognize it? I think that's a pretty good assumption because Jesus judges the secrets of our hearts. He writes them down in the sand. There they are. That's the one, one question. The second question, why didn't Jesus let her be condemned? Why did he not condemn her? Was he saying, adultery is cool with me. I'm pro-adultery now, right? So go, it's all good. Is that what he was saying? Of course not. He's, he's saying, I don't condemn you. Why? Because he was about to take her condemnation. That's why. Because he was going to go to the cross to take the stones, to take the beatings, to take the insults, to take the shame, to pay the penalty so she could go free. She could go free. This is what God does for us too. When you're surrounded by the reality of your sins, when you feel death encroaching because Rightfully, you deserve it before God. Jesus steps in between. He stands up for you. And he says, no, I'll take the condemnation. I'll take it. You go free and sin no more. Now, if we understand how gracious this is, 
how wonderful this Jesus is, how amazing it is that he has forgiven every one of our wretched sins. Is it possible for us to understand that and also hold up stones to cast at other people? Or do we, if we understand God's holiness, if we understand God's righteousness, we lose our judgmental attitudes. And instead we have humility in our hearts, even love for other sinners, because they're just like us. In fact, they're probably better than us. And they deserve God's mercy even more than we do. And yet God has been merciful even to me, the chief of sinners. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would draw from our minds and our hearts uh, the poison of pride, the poison of being judgmental against other people. Help us instead, Lord, to see that we are rightly condemned because of our sins, and also, Lord, to see uh, your beautiful gospel. Help us, Lord, when we communicate with others that that are full of sin, to do it not with pride and not with judgment, but with humility and with grace, because Jesus has treated us this way. In his name we pray. Amen.